So <clears throat> I want to build a little bit on that idea that God is a promise keeper. Today's passage in the book of Revelation chapter 7 really has everything to do with the fact that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He is a covenant-keeping God and He is a promise-keeping God. And the reality that we read about here in Revelation chapter 7 today is we're going to look at this, this mysterious 144,000 from every tribe of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. There's so many different, as we'll see here in a minute, there's so many different interpretations about who are these from the 12 tribes of Israel and is this a literal number, is this symbolic, is this all spiritual and things like that. But, but ultimately what we're going to find out today is that because the God of Israel is a covenant-keeping God, He has inextricably bound Himself to the ethnic, national, and territorial people of Israel. And the reality that today, in 2021, that we have a state of Israel back in the Holy Land, back in the Middle East, underneath the government of Israel, in the land of Israel, and now with many people of Israel living back in the land, guys, is one of the greatest testimonies to God's faithfulness and His promise to always preserve for Himself a remnant from this particular people group that we know it will play a very essential role in the last days, especially when it comes to this time of great tribulation. And so if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation this morning, I want you to see in Revelation chapter 7, where we have just finished up looking at the six seals. And here in Revelation chapter 7, we are back to, let me see if I can move this over a little bit. We are back to um, a, a cut scene in the book of Revelation. So again, if you've been following along with us, and I've tried to help you understand, again, where I interpret, how I interpret the book of Revelation and how I'm putting the pieces together, looking at the prophetic patterns that we've been given in the Old Testament, and then putting the pieces together from the book of Revelation itself is that the seals represent the overall big picture of what's going to be happening during this time of great tribulation, during Daniel's 70th week, but even more specifically the last half of Daniel's 70th week. And then we're going to see this happen throughout the book of Revelation where we'll have these, these interludes or what these intervals, okay? These are like cutscenes, and, and I tried to help you when I... I think many, many weeks ago or months ago when we first kind of did some introductory work on the book of Revelation, the, the way that I kind of envision it, and again, this is just the way I kind of wrap my mind around, is that John is seeing a vision. Jesus is, is allowing him to see and try to process visually all of these things that are going to be happening in the last days. I'm sure it was overwhelming for John. I can't imagine as he's there, I don't know how he showed him the vision. God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But the best way I can try to understand it is almost like he's, he's watching a video, you know? And it's like he's, he's watching this scene, these things unfold, and, and it, the graphic uh, illustrations and some of the symbolism. He's trying to do his best to convey to us what he's experiencing and what he is seeing take place. And I feel like once we get to the end of the sixth seal, again, this is the day of the Lord. This is when Jesus returns. This is the day the world caves in. This is the day all of the wicked people who are 
following the beast and the Antichrist are judged. And it's like John is processing this big picture at the end of the sixth seal. And it was so much for him to take in, the Lord just pushes what? The pause button. He says, okay, let's pause. Let's, let's take a break. Let's take a breath. All right? Now I'm going to help you fill in some of the details as to everything that I just showed you over the six seals, the, the big picture of what's going to be happening during this unique time in history that we're awaiting to, to take place. He, it's like he pushes the pause button and it's a cutscene. And we see this, uh, uh, cinema photographers and movie producers, they do this all the time in movies, right? You're, you're kind of watching the natural flow of the movie and all of a sudden there's a break and it takes you back 50 years. Or, or it takes you forward into the story and you find out something later that, that's going to happen later. And then, it, then it, that's like a cutscene. And then it comes back and it picks back up where it left off. And in many regards, in many ways, I look at the book of Revelation like, now it's not perfect. I'm not saying that's exactly the way that it's happening. But that's the way that I think that we need to be able to understand the flow of this book. And so this cutscene is very, very important because obviously the Lord wants to let John understand and wants us to understand some important details that are going to help us um, really grasp the, uh, you know, the, the, the account of this particular time in, history, in, in the future that we're uh, waiting as God's people. And so this is kind of a cutscene, And so that's where we pick up here in Revelation chapter 7. And as I said before, this passage is uniquely bound to the ethnic, territorial, and covenantal people of Israel. All right, so let's look at Revelation 7 this morning. We'll do our best to, to unpack this. It says, after this, okay, so John is he's kind of processing what he just saw, and now God's given him uh, something else to, to see here. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind may blow on the earth or sea or against any tree, and then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. Now listen, this is key. With the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. And he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, as we see here, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, guys, about the role of angels. But I think it's interesting that we need to point out this. There are both good angels who are serving God and His purposes that are going to be, uh, have many different roles and responsibilities during this time at, at the end. And there's also going to be fallen angels, bad, you know, evil, malicious angels that are going to be unleashed and, and allowed to do their thing during the time of the end. But both of them are working whose will? God's will. Ultimately, God is using both his servants, his, his angelic beings, and the ones that are serving the enemy, Satan. He's still allowing them to operate within parameters, within boundaries, but he's still allowing them and will allow them to operate uh, in and through the earth, upon the earth during this time. But both of them are going to be bringing about God's will and God's plan and purpose. Okay, And so we can see a little bit more about that as we go forward, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there because I want to jump right in to uh, the 144,000. And so we've got this, uh, this language here about do not harm the earth or do not harm the sea. Um, and these angels who are holding back the judgments of God are at the four corners of the earth. And I just want to make this one mention that when it, whenever the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth, 
It's just basically referring to the, the four um, directions on the compass, right? North, what, north, south, east, and west, which basically means the whole what? The whole earth, right? If we had to pick a center, a center point on the earth, what's the city that God has bound himself to that we are told is the center of the earth? Jerusalem, okay? So everything that we read in the Bible, especially prophetically, is Jerusalem-centric. We start there, okay? Because the final battle is going to take place for Jerusalem, Zion, okay? That's where God has claimed his throne. Well, when God claims his throne, who wants to take it? Satan wants to take it, and he wants to steal it, and he wants to put himself on the throne of God. And so that's why Satan is so obsessed with Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, we look at the land of Israel and then beyond further out from there, okay? So that's just all it's talking about when it talks about the four winds of heaven. All right, now let's jump into this idea of the seal of God, okay? In Revelation 7:3, it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. What is this business all about? Well, the first thing we need to talk about is what does it mean to be sealed? The seal, this is your first point, probably if you have a listening guide, some of you may want to, you know, fill in your blanks. But let's make clear what the Bible says about the seal of the living God, okay? The seal of the living God is always associated with the saving, securing, and sanctifying work of who? This is the Holy Spirit's work. Okay, when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in the Messiah, okay, at that very moment, we are what? We are sealed. We are sealed, we are saved, we are secure, and God promises to sanctify us. Okay, and so this is very important that we understand this concept of what it means to be sealed. Okay, and so... All the benefits of the Holy Spirit and His ministry in our lives, we begin to have access and we begin to benefit from the participation of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's think about how important it is, guys. And, I, and I've shared with, with you guys about this so many times. As, as we do prepare, as, as we are walking and living in a generation that is so evil and that it is so wicked, and we have so many challenges and obstacles to our faith. But the number one thing that I've tried to encourage each and every one of you that is essential to be able to walk and live through these days by remaining faithful to the Lord Jesus is that we must be sealed by whom? You must be sealed by the Holy Spirit. We will not survive these days unless we are first sealed by the Holy Spirit. Think about all that the Holy Spirit does. He is our counselor. He leads us and guides us into all Truth. How many of us need truth today? I mean, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't have truth. We can't even accept the truth. The Bible says the natural man cannot receive the things that come from God because they're spiritually discerned. And that's why the Holy Spirit is essential for us to receive truth, to empower us for ministry, to allow us to remain faithful in our witness so that we will not be ashamed of Jesus Christ in these last days, so that we can have spiritual gifts and the, the Holy Spirit is going to work many different signs and wonders and supernatural healings. I think that we are going to see these things manifest in the last days like never before. I've told you guys this before and I'll tell you it to you again. 
Jesus reminds us that as his followers, we're going to be persecuted for his name's sake. We're going to be drugged before authorities and cast into prison and, and put in, into all kind of uh, compromising situations. But you remember what Jesus reminded us. He said, when those things happen to you, don't even worry about what you are going to say. Why do we not have to worry about what we're going to say at that time? Because the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. And he will give us what we need at that time. But if we're not sealed by the Holy Spirit, guys, we are in big trouble. So not just for your essential salvation, to be assured of your salvation, but to make sure that your salvation is secure and that you are going to be sanctified along the way. So let's take a look at a couple of uh, verses of Scripture that I think would help us before we really look into the identity of these 144,000. Let's look at some scriptures that remind us of how important it is to be sealed. It says, God establishes us with, uh, with you in Christ, and he has anointed us. He has also put his what? His seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, right? The spirit is our deposit that guarantees that we will be ultimately redeemed when Jesus returns. Ephesians 1, it says that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, and in him you also, when you heard the word of truth and the gospel, your salvation, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in Jesus in him, and you were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hey guys, we haven't possessed our inheritance just yet. Even the believers who are in heaven right now with the Lord, they have not yet received their what? Their inheritance. That happens at the end of the age when Jesus comes and then we will receive our, our promised inheritance. But until then, we have the Holy Spirit as our seal. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I could give you more and more verses about that, guys, but I think it's important that we understand that just as these 144,000 will be sealed, I mean that I believe that literally means that they're going to be saved and they're going to be secured and they're going to be used as particular witnesses through this time of great tribulation that God is going to use them for particular purposes being empowered by whom? The Holy Spirit. Right, The Holy Spirit will most definitely be active and at work during the Great Tribulation. Let's not doubt that for one minute, okay? So who are these 144,000? Well, it says God will seal. This is, this is where I'm beginning to kind of unpack now the identity of, these, of this group of people. God will seal a remnant of chosen servants from ethnic Israel, okay, to faithfully follow Christ through Throughout the great tribulation. So as I said before, as I opened this, uh, this message, I reminded you that God is a promise-keeping God, is he not? Yeah. And God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. Well, he made a unique promise to the ethnic people of Israel. Okay, he is the God of Israel. And he made a promise that one day he would bring them all back to their land and they, he would restore their fortunes, and he would be their God, and they would be his people, and he would rule and reign with them there in, from Jerusalem for a thousand years, talking about the millennial kingdom, and that all of the promises and covenant blessings of God, he will, he will make good 
in the end. Okay? So he is a covenant-keeping God, and this has everything to do with the people of Israel, and we are now talking about ethnic Israel. Now, I shared something in my small group just a minute ago, and I'm going to share it briefly with you today. You realize, right, that prior to 1948, there were really many prophecies from the Old Testament, and really looking at this passage here in the book of Revelation, it would be an impossibility for any of these prophecies to be fulfilled prior to 1948. Does anybody know what happened in 1948? The nation of Israel was reborn. Guys, up, almost 1,900 years had passed between the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the rebirth of the nation in 1948. Almost 1,900 years had passed and there was no one in the land. The Jews had all been scattered throughout the nations. Those of the, who had survived, they, they were just a remnant. The city of Jerusalem was a waste. There were very, very few people living in Jerusalem. And so prior to 1948, it didn't make any sense that the nations, all of the surrounding nations from Israel would have invaded and wanted to in, uh, conquer and lay siege to Jerusalem because there was nobody. There was nobody there. It didn't make any sense. And so a lot of prophecy people, a lot of prophecy students and Bible scholars for generations and generations, they just couldn't make sense of all these prophecies in the Bible talking about Israel being back in the land and all the nations coming together to, to uh, attack Israel and to invade Jerusalem. None of that stuff made sense until what? Until 1948, the nation was reborn out of the horrors of the Holocaust. And all of a sudden now we have a state of Israel. They have control over parts of Jerusalem once again. And there are millions of Jewish people living where? Back in the land. It is a miracle. I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest prophetic fulfillments that we have ever seen in our part in, the, in this generation. And that's one, just one of the many reasons why I believe we are living in the last of the last days. Because after 1,900 years, God brought the state of Israel back and many of the Jewish people are living now back in the land. So now it makes perfect sense to understand why the enemies of Israel would want to invade and attack the, the Holy Land and to invade Jerusalem, right? And so there is a miracle, a unique miracle associated with the rebirth of Israel. Look at what it says in Joel chapter 2. This is Joel's... Uh, one of Joel's prophetic passages that um, Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, but he says that it will come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And he goes on to talk about how there will be the signs in the heavens and blood, fire and columns of smoke. We saw this last week. The sun will be darkened and the moon turned to blood before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And look at what he says in verse 32. And it will come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. You see what we're going to discover here guys that this small group of people, 144,000 represents a remnant, okay, a remnant of ethnic, it, ethnic people from all the 12 tribes of Israel. But we're going to see that God has specific, unique purposes for them as they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, 
If you think about being sealed or being marked, of course, we already have a passage in the Old Testament that helps us interpret what's happening here in Revelation chapter 7. And that comes from Ezekiel chapter 9. Okay, this is why we got to do a good Bible study and we got to be able to look at our Old Testament and we got to be able to uh, connect the dots and draw these data points together to figure out what's happening. Okay, so look at what it says in Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, if you don't know anything about Ezekiel's ministry, he was prophesying to the Jewish people just prior to the invasion of who? Does anybody know? King Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonians. Okay, so just prior to the time that the Babylonians invaded Israel, came in and laid siege to Jerusalem, they destroyed the city, and they burned the temple. Okay, Ezekiel had a ministry just prior to that. Look at what Ezekiel told, the Lord told Ezekiel during this time. It says, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate. Now, Ezekiel seeing a vision, okay, these executioners are being unleashed. They're about to be unleashed on Jerusalem. And if, uh, the upper gate, which faces the north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them, a man was clothed in linen and with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, I'm of the interpretation, or I have the interpretation, that Ezekiel seeing a vision, and these executioners, guys, these are, not, these are not human executioners. These are spiritual beings. These are probably angelic beings, again, that God is about to unleash on Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel seeing this. Now look at what happens. Now when the glory of God of, the, of Israel had gone up from the cherub, on which it rested in the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist, and the Lord said to this man, okay, so picture, there's a man clothed in linen. He's got a writing case on his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a what? Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means that these are faithful, a remnant of faithful believers who were still alive in the city of Jerusalem, after the majority of the nation had gone astray and gone to follow other, other uh, chase after other gods, all of the abominations that were taking place all around them, these were a remnant of true believers who were disgusted. They were grieved. They were heartbroken and grieved over the sin of their people. And God says, I'm going to take a minute before I destroy the city, and I'm going to what? I'm going to mark them on their what? On their foreheads. This is not new information. Guys, the book of Revelation has very little new information. Almost all of it is going to be repeated or kind of uh, recast to us. But most of it has its origin in the Old Testament. Now look at what happens. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. You shall not spare and you shall show no pity. And it says, look at what it says in verse uh, Verse 6, it says, but touch no one. Okay, so before these executioners are unleashed upon Jerusalem, he says, touch no one on whom is the what? So what does that mean? This mark, these, this remnant of believers in Jerusalem were marked, they were sealed, which means they were what? Protected from God's judgments. Well, that should give us a good indication about how God is going to use these 144,000. And not just them, 
Because all believers are sealed, right? And so if you're a believer living during the time of the Great Tribulation, you're still what? You're sealed. We are sealed again by the Holy Spirit. But look at what Ezekiel says. Once he, he figures out what's happening, he says he fell upon his face and he said, Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath upon Jerusalem? Ezekiel understood how serious the situation was. But the answer to that question is no. He was not going to destroy the remnant because God will always preserve for himself a what? A remnant. And that's what this passage in Revelation 7 is really all about. Now I want to show you an interesting thing. The word mark, put a mark on their foreheads, is the Hebrew word tav. This is something, a little interesting side note. Now in modern Hebrew, that's the, the top letter there is how you would write the letter tav. In Paleo-Hebrew, which was being used in the days of Ezekiel, that was a tav. Looks pretty similar to a what? It's the letter T from, from Hebrew, tav, and it literally looks like a... So picture this. All the believing remnant in Jerusalem who were being protected from God's wrath and judgment just prior to the invasion of the Babylonians into Jerusalem, they were all marked with a what? With a cross on their forehead. How cool is that? And so again, this gives us a little bit of an indication, I think, of what's happening and what's the purpose of marking or sealing this remnant of believers in the book of Revelation. Okay, so, so again, here's kind of what most of you are asking. So who are these people? Like, who are the 144,000? All right, let's take a, just a minute and a time out, and I just got to talk to you about who is Israel. Okay? When Israel was redeemed out of Egypt... They came out of Egypt, a new nation, right? God's chosen people. But you know what the book of Exodus tells us? It was a mixed multitude. Now, when we talk about Israel, guys, we talk about the descendants. We're, now, let's talk in the flesh, physically. We're talking about a, a unique people group who are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who they are, right? They, they descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob became Israel, and the 12 tribes came from him. Well, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went into Egypt for 400 years and God redeemed them out. That's the Exodus story. When they came out of Egypt, the Bible says they were a mixed multitude. Do you know who came out with the Israelites out of Egypt? Many Egyptians, Gentiles. Do you know that the very first corporate people of God was, a, was consisted both of Israelites and Gentiles? Do you know what one of the greatest travesties of history is, is that in the Old Testament, the Israelites or the Jewish people, we use that word, that term lightly, the Jewish people or the Israelites, they thought they were special and unique and they thought all of the Gentiles were wicked and evil and profane as heathen people, right? So they had this sense about them that they were what? Special. They were better than everybody else. But God said, I don't care if you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the flesh. All I'm looking at is your what? Your heart. Okay? So the Israelites, they were in error by thinking that just because they were a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were, they were okay. Okay? Now, fast forward to post-cross, post-resurrection. Now we have the church. And the church's greatest error, there's two great errors in the church. There's many, but two I'm going to talk on right now. Number one is the church has taught for generations that we Gentiles, we replaced Israel. 
That God, you know, God had his bride in the Old Testament, the Father, but now Jesus has a new what? A new bride, a better upgraded version called the church. I'm serious. This is replacement theology. And so God's purposes for Israel, they're over, and now he's working through these Gentiles called the church. That is an error. That is not true. The other thing that we've done is that we said, well, God has his church, but he also has his purposes for Israel over here, but they're, they're two different, they're two separate groups of people. They're completely different groups of people, okay? What I'm learning in my own personal journey in, in the faith and in the study is, is more what I call restoration remnant um, covenant theology. And let me explain to you what I mean. This is important because we got to get some of this straight before we look at who the 40, 144,000 are, okay? I want you to think about this. I'm a Gentile. I'm not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right? And many of you, probably most of you here are not either. But when we trusted in Jesus the Messiah, we trusted in the God of Israel. And we were incorporated into the commonwealth of Israel. The Bible says that we as Gentiles were grafted what? Grafted into the tree, which is who? It's Israel. So it's not that we're two separate people. Is that by faith in Messiah, we become part of God's original plan, which has always been Israel. As a matter of fact, when we get into the millennial kingdom and Jesus comes back, he's going to rule in the land of Israel. He's going to be the king of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel will be in the land. And guess what? We will be participating with them. You understand what I'm saying? We will be part of Israel. Okay, and so we got this big distinction and these big problems and these big it's so confusing. Everybody's so confused about who is the church, who is Israel. And guys, I'm telling you, this is one of the worst errors that the church has ever been a part of is that we have not gotten this part right. Okay, and I don't have a whole lot of time to go into all the details about who Israel is, but that's just a, a brief history. Okay, because think about it in the same way that God's people was the minority Gentile in the Old Testament, primarily Jew. Now we Gentiles are the covenant people of God, but there are still a remnant of who? A remnant of believing Jews that are in, in the community of faith. So it's just like the things just flipped, they just flip flop from Old Testament to New Testament. But in the end, God has a plan for who? For both of us. So our, our, our pathways to the end may be a little bit different, but our destiny is the same destiny, okay? And so I think it's important that we understand that. Now, here's another problem that we run into. The word Jew is not technically correct. So when I hear 144,000, I hear people say these are Jewish people. But you know what? Judah only represents one tribe. Look at what it says in Revelation 7. There were 12,000 from each what? Each tribe. Okay? The Jews only represent one tribe. So technically we're talking about Israel. And so again, that's just one of those little technicalities. But today we've just come to say the Jewish people represents everybody in the land. But this represents all the uh, tribes of Israel. And so there's 12,000 from each tribe. What, is this, what does all this stuff mean? Let me just kind of cut to the nitty gritty. This means that in the last days, God will have his covenant promises with the covenant people of God. And he will fulfill those promises and he will be actively engaged in bringing the people back to the land, which is exactly what happened 
1948. So if some of you guys may want to go and, and chase down all the different uh, tribes and how they're in different orders and all the different names, I'm not going to spend any time with that this morning. But we've got to look at Revelation 14 to get a handle as we kind of try to bring this whole message into a close. I want to, I want to look at Revelation 14 because this is going to give you a good indication of who we're talking about here. Okay? Revelation 7 tells us that there was a 12,000 from each tribe of Israel that were sealed with the living God on their forehead. Now in Revelation 14, we see them again. Look at what it says. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him these 144,000. Now this gives us more detail. It says in verse 3, They were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. And these 144,000 had been redeemed from the earth. It says, These who have not defiled themselves with women because they are virgins, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever they go. These have been redeemed from mankind as what? This is key. This is key. They are first fruits. First fruits for God and for the Lamb because in their mouth there was no lie because they are blameless. Okay? And so, guys, this, I think, helps us get a better indication of who the 144,000. Now, there's so many interpretations. If you've ever heard the Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach that the 144,000 have a special place to rule and reign in heaven, and then the rest of believers, you know, have to live on the earth. So the Jehovah's Witnesses take this passage, and they pervert it, and they teach something that's not biblical. Um, I've heard from my whole life growing up that the 144,000, they're just Jewish evangelists, okay? They're just Jews that go throughout the earth telling people about Jesus in the Great Tribulation. But does the Scripture actually say that? It really doesn't. Now, we might can get there by taking a couple of jumps and looking at a couple of different Scriptures, but that's just not what the Scripture says. These are the things that the Scripture says as we look at the 144,000. We know they're servants of Jesus. Check. We know they're sealed by who? Holy Spirit. They are, they are of ethnic Israel. I do believe this is a literal number, and I'll go ahead and tell you that. I do believe we're talking about a literal number. I'm not 100% confident about that. Some people think it's representative or a symbolic number. I think it's a literal number. That's just my interpretation. But again, I'm not dogmatic on that. We know they're redeemed. This is the key. They are redeemed as first fruits. To God and to the Lamb. Okay? They have the name of God and on the Lamb on their forehead. They learn and they sing a new song. They are young men. I do take that literally. I think these are young men and they are virgin men. Okay? They've never been with a woman. They, are, they follow the Lamb wherever they go and they have no lie in their mouth and they're blameless spiritually, meaning they're spiritually pure. This is the biggest point, if you take anything away from this message today, this is the biggest point you need to take away from this. Okay, this 144,000 from every tribe of Israel, I believe is a literal group of people, and the Bible tells us they are the what? First fruits. Now, any farmers out there, this is an agricultural term. When you plant a crop, you go out as it begins to grow, and you're checking every day for the what? For the first fruits. And when you go out and you finally find the first fruits and you're able to bring it in and have that first tomato sandwich, man, it's so good, right? It's so good. But you know that throughout the rest of the summer, what are you going to be getting? More tomatoes. 
right? More fruit. And so these are the first fruits. In other words, this is a, a group of people from ethnic Israel that God has special purposes for during the Great Tribulation. They're believing in Jesus because they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But the key to this is that knowing that if they are the first fruit, that means that there is a great what coming? A great harvest. A greater harvest of more people who are coming into the kingdom. And God is using these individual people from the, every tribe of Israel to use them to bring in a greater harvest that will come much later. So the 144,000 will be the first fruits of a final harvest and the resurrection at the end of the age. Okay? And so you see in Leviticus is the feast of first fruits kind of sets the example. The, the, the priest would wave the first fruit in front of the people and saying there's going to be a great harvest later. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ is the first fruits from those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus being resurrected from the dead, he is, a, he is the first fruit. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans chapter 8, it says that we who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we await our redemption, which is happening at the last day when Jesus returns. We've received resurrected bodies. Jesus tells us that the harvest is at the end of the age. So this is when it's all going to be brought together. Okay, so what do we learn about these men? I do think, as I said before, Literally speaking, these are all going to be young men from ethnic Israel, and they will be virgins. That's what, why do I come to that conclusion? Well, that's what the what? That's what the Bible says. And a lot of people say, oh, that's not what it means. It just means they're going to be pure, and it could, it could be men or women. I, I don't think so. I think that this is a specific group of young men who may be alive today. Who knows? But I do believe they will be virgins. They will be pure in speech and conduct. And here's the three in my interpretation, these are the three possible roles and responsibilities that these young men will have during the Great Tribulation. God is raising them up as priests. He's raising them up as worshipers or musicians. Okay? And possibly as what? As soldiers. All right, where do I get that? Well, in David's day, he always would assign the priests to different divisions by number. So we, we look at these numbers. Old Testament, when you, whenever you start counting people and taking numbers, it's always associated with the priests or the musicians in the temple of the tabernacle. So David did this. He, he divided up people according to number. In Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, look at what he says about being single. If you're an unmarried man, you're anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please Him, right? But if you're married, your interests are divided. So he says that if you are unmarried, you remain unmarried so that you can really fully serve the Lord and be holy in body and spirit. Let me say something. Some of you people out here, you're single and you're fretting about it and you're stressing about it and you're saying, am I ever going to get married? Does God have somebody for me? Guys, listen, don't what? Don't worry about that. You have the opportunity now, if you're a young adult or you're single right now, to go and serve the Lord wholeheartedly, and you don't have to worry. I mean, and again, it's a blessing to get married. It's a blessing to have a family, but don't be anxious about that right now. Just serve the Lord where you are right now because God is raising up a generation of people who can 100% throw themselves into full-time ministry for the Lord. And so I think there may be something to that. Jesus said this. This is fascinating. He's talking about eunuchs. He said, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
It means there are certain people who choose to live a life of celibacy, okay, for, for what? For the kingdom of heaven. And there's nothing wrong with that. Not everybody is called to that, but this group of 144,000, I believe, are going to be called to a life of celibacy, and they're going to be throwing themselves 100% into kingdom work for the Lord. So there will be priests, they will be musicians, and possibly they will be soldiers. Now let me show you where I get the idea that they will be soldiers. If you look at... Uh, the Israeli Defense Force uh, right now. If you look at the book of Numbers, this is about the only place where I see a correlation between the 12,000 from each tribe. Numbers 31. This is when Moses and the Israelites are coming up through the... uh, getting ready to go into the Promised Land and they have one final battle against the Midianites. Look at what it says. It says, Moses spoke to the people and said, armed men, again, these are men, from among you for war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian, and you shall send 1,000 from each of the tribes of Israel to war. So there were 1,000, that means 12,000 men total, went to war against Midian. Okay, and they, and they followed the high priest into war. Now look at what it says at the end of the chapter. After the war, the high priest comes back to Moses and he says... He says, Moses, your servants have counted the men for war who were under our command, and there is not a what? There's not a man missing from among us. 12,000, 1,000 from each tribe went to war. How many came back? 12,000. Do you think that's not something supernatural going on there? I do. So God has given us a picture. He's possibly given us an idea that this group of 144,000, which is 12,000 from each tribe, I think perhaps... And again, this is just my interpretation. Maybe they have some role as soldiers fighting for the people of God during this time of great tribulation. Well, I said, well, what does Psalm 144 say? I'm weird like that. 144,000, what does Psalm 144 say? And I started reading it, and I'm like, whoa, maybe there's something to that. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war. Bow your heavens and come down, O Lord. Look at what he says. For you, uh, you despise those who speak lies and those whose right hand is uh, a hand of falsehood. I will sing to you a what? New song. And on the ten-string harp I will play to you who gives victory to kings. What do we know about these 144,000? They, they are given a new song. And they are worship leaders. I think God is raising up a remnant from ethnic Israel to be priests in the kingdom of God and to be worshipers in the kingdom of God and possibly to be soldiers to fight for the people of God during this time of great tribulation. That's my interpretation. That's the best that I can do. Okay? Again, there's so many different ways to look at this, but that's the way that I see it. Now, here's the last thing, and I'm going to share with you, and we've got to wrap it up. We're also told that these 144,000 will be living stones in the New Jerusalem. So they will be established in the New Jerusalem as living stones. Well, where do I get that from? In Revelation 12, it says that never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. What's distinguishing these 144,000? What do they have written on their foreheads? The name of God is written on their foreheads. And it says in... Revelation 3, that they will have God's name written on them. 
In Revelation 22, again, it says, They will see his face and his name will be on their what? On their foreheads. Guys, does that mean that you're literally going to see the name of Jesus on their forehead? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, probably not, but it could. I don't know what all is that going to look like, but I'm, I'm not here to, to say that it's got to be this way or that way. But there is something unique about these people being sealed and being marked with the name of God. Now look at what it says in the New Jerusalem is that, that we will have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the gates of New Jerusalem. Interesting. In Revelation 21, on the 12 foundations were the names of the 12 apostles. And then if you look at the wall of New Jerusalem, how did the wall measure? It measured 100 and what? 144 cubits. There's got to be a connection there somewhere. 144,000, 144 cubits in the wall. And you begin to say, well, how can we be living stones? How can, how can there be a city, a New Jerusalem that's going to come down, and it's got foundations and a wall and a gate, but then how can it also be made up of what? People, right? And it gets kind of confusing. Well, Peter tells us this. Look at what Peter says. He says, You have come to him a living stone rejected by man, but in sight of God, chosen and precious. For you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. So if I had to tell you what I feel like this 144,000 is, guys, is they have a unique purpose. As I ask our praise team to come on back up here, I'm just going to wrap this thing up. They have a unique purpose. They are literally a group of people, a group of young men from ethnic Israel. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit, means they're believers in Jesus. They are the first fruits, okay? They're just the beginning of a greater what? a greater harvest that will take place at the end. I do believe, as we said before, the great tribulation, this is why we need to make sure we understand this, guys. As much as it's going to be a time of difficulty at the end, there's going to be a great time of evil during this time. It's also going to be a great time of a spiritual what? A spiritual harvest of souls are going to come into the kingdom during this time. And this group of 144,000, I believe, play a major role in being the first fruits to God during this time. And then they will also be part of the new Jerusalem, which comes down during the millennial kingdom. So how is it that we're living stones in the new Jerusalem? Well, when you talk about a city, you're talking about its infrastructure. You talk about its walls and its bridges and its roads and its buildings. But when you talk about the city of Memphis, you can also be talking about who? The people. We are the people of God who will be willing, dwelling in the new Jerusalem, representing God's people forever and ever as he is our God and we are his people. So guys, if I have one message to leave with you, it's this. Have you been sealed? Okay? Have you been sealed? I've told you this from the beginning and I'm going to tell you this one more time. How many of us are going to live through this time? We don't know. How many of us are going to live past tomorrow? Do we know? Is tomorrow guaranteed? That's why it's so important, guys, that we are assured of our relationship with Christ. 
that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. So that if indeed we do live through this time and we are called to be His witnesses and we do need the power and the Spirit of God to get us through, we have the Spirit. But guys, more than anything else, what we need more than ever before is to know deep in our heart that we have that relationship with Christ so that if today is our last day, then we die. And that Holy Spirit is a, is a down payment and a deposit that guarantees eternal life. There's nothing more important. When we study the book of Revelation and everything gets all scary and hairy and nitty and gritty and you guys start to get a little bit concerned, a little bit worried and think that it's all doom and gloom, it's not. It's not all doom and gloom, okay? And so, guys, we have this amazing time that we're living in. And the establishment of the children of Israel back in the land in 1948, to me, was one of the greatest prophetic signs that had to happen before any of this stuff could take place. So we know that the time is what? We know that the time is near. Okay? And so we're going to sing one more, one more song called Cornerstone, one of my favorites. And guys, if you need me, if you want to pray, if you need to, to make sure that you have that assurance of salvation, that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, I'm always here for counsel. I'm always here for prayer. And so you do your business with God right where you are.